Hello, and welcome to the Platform Podcast, hosted by Market Place Risk Advisory Board Chair L. Tucker, a former journalist who writes, speaks, and consults on all things startups. The Platform Podcast features conversations with founders, operators, and experts tackling a myriad of topics facing the marketplace and sharing economy startup ecosystem. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not professional advice. For specific issues, please seek an appropriate professional or contact us at info at marketplacerisk.com for more information. And now, without further ado, I will hand things over to Elle. Hello, and welcome back to the Platform Podcast. Today, I am joined by Jennifer Kelly, who is Senior Director of Marketplace Integrity at Etsy and an advisory board member at Marketplace Risk. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I should say at the outset that the views I express in our discussion are my own and not the employer of Etsy. I'm excited to dig in. Really interested to hear about your job. Etsy is uh, one of the biggest and most familiar names when it comes to marketplaces. Um, and, and was it a marketplace that you had heard about or were familiar with before you actually took on your role? I was, yes. Um, I had used Etsy extensively for my wedding, which is, I think, a common use case for the marketplace. Um, and I was a pretty early sign up. I looked back when I applied for the job and my account was created in 2012. So a long time right. user. Yes. I wonder if they checked that too before they called you in for interview. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> so tell me a bit about your role. Marketplace integrity. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. So Marketplace Integrity is one of the sub organizations within Etsy's broader trust and safety org. Um, and Marketplace Integrity is an operational team that focuses on legal and regulatory risk. So it includes operational teams comprised of agents that work on workflows relating to anti-money laundering, sanctions, seller verification, um, content moderation, intellectual property and counterfeit, product safety, um, and a long tail of, of legal process. We also work with the marketing team to vet our sellers and listings prior to feature um, in a marketing context. And how is it possible to to do that at the scale that you are dealing with at Etsy? I mean, it's obviously possible because you you are, you are have these um, amazing teams and you're doing it, but it feels like almost that you might be, it's just a needle in a haystack. Is it not um, such a, a huge marketplace that it's hard to actually, to, to um, you know, to really know what, what's going on everywhere on it? Yeah, that is really... Um, the core problem set, I would say, and a phrase that I did not coin that I had to use often is the goal is to find the needle and then shrink the haystack. So we use a combination of um, human and automated detective systems to surface content for review. Um, Sometimes decision-making can be automated where certainty is high, where we can be quite precise with our tooling. Um, but Etsy's inventory is unique. It is a place to find handmade goods, things that you may not find um, at a big box retailer. So we don't have barcodes or SKUs. We don't have a lot of the structured product data that other marketplaces like Amazon may have at their disposal as they're building these detective systems. So 
our company, um, our motto is keep commerce human. And we like to extend that to the work of our content moderation teams as well. We will keep content moderation human because that will help us keep commerce human. So there'll always be a degree of human moderation involved um, at mm -hmm. Etsy as well. Which must make it difficult to, to scale, presumably. Yeah, it's tricky. It's, um, it is really just a marriage of those automated detective systems, really talented engineering teams um, that use a combination of machine learning and um, sort of rules-based controls to, to surface content and then where needed have a set of human eyes um, review. But the, the tooling that the agents use, the tooling that the humans use to review is really important as is the um, detective systems. And so Etsy itself, a lot of people will have been familiar with it in its early incarnation. I've certainly been using it for, for years. How has it evolved and, and what, type of, um, what type of people listed on it to start with? And, and how has that changed and what, what challenges has Etsy faced with, with how that um, typical persona on the marketplace has changed? Yeah, I think um, a lot of what makes Etsy special is how low the barrier to entry is for um, entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs on the site. It's intentional that it's an accessible platform. So the fees are not super high. It doesn't take a lot to open your first shop and to get going. Um, so for that reason, we've continued to really maintain and foster uh, um, this platform that really encourages and helps micro businesses flourish. The majority of our sellers are women, the majority work out of their homes. And that's been true since the beginning of Etsy. Mm -hmm. um, I think as Etsy's platform has grown in size and has become more of a household name, it has um, also, of course, attracted more bad actors. Um, so we've had to grow and invest in our fraud potential fraud protection program, our seller risk programming, to make sure that the site remains a trusted and safe place. What do you think attracted, in the first place, the bad actors to Etsy? And I mean, because this environment of, you know, often women and just sort of handmade goods, it's almost as though, you know, it, it wouldn't necessarily be, you know, an, an obvious place for, for that type of um, illegal activity to take place. Yeah, it's the internet, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, anywhere you have user-generated content, anywhere you try to create an environment that encourages um, adoption and, and reach, you're going to see the dark side of the internet. It sort of just comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think there's anything in particular that attracted a bad actor to Etsy other than... Um, it was there. <laughs> a chance to make a quick buck. Yeah, they're yeah. going to see what vulnerabilities exist. And it's... It's whack-a-mole. I think across the whole internet, you um, are finding the new ways that bad actors are attempting to evade your controls and, and make money or do whatever they're trying to do illicitly. And you're constantly trying to keep up with that evolution. And that's what makes this field so exciting and dynamic. What out of the different areas of the challenges that you have or the areas that you have to deal with is the bit the biggest challenge? Is it um, counterfeit goods or is it the content moderation or is it, you know, a fraudulent activity? What What's the area that, that you would say you had the most issues with? 
So marketplace integrity actually doesn't include our trust and safety functions focused on mitigating fraud and seller risk. That's um, two other organizations within trust and safety at Etsy. So for me, I'm very focused on content moderation and I consider um, anti-counterfeiting a subset of that. So um, I think, you know, content moderation is just a giant topic and there's lots of different sub-risks that are embedded in that broader risk category. So um, it's been really interesting, I think, to, to uh, segment content moderation and create programs around some of those core risk areas content uh, counterfeiting being one, but product safety being another. So you can really build a robust, multifaceted approach um, that, that keeps the platform safe and trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me a bit about how you actually came to your role, because I, I, I often say this to, to uh, podcast guests. I don't imagine that, you know, you woke up one morning and thought, you know, uh, uh, this is you know, the the job I, w- I want to do as a teenager, normally you would, you know, these things evolve, don't they? And and there's always a journey to to discovering um, about this world and about marketplaces and actually finding what part of it sort of piques your interest. Tell me about when you sort of discovered this world and, and took an interest in, in the trust and safety side of it. I don't think trust and safety as an industry as a profession existed when I was first starting out in my career and thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up. So definitely did not um, think that this is where I was going to land. But um, I was one of those sort of very type A kids that said I wanted to be a lawyer and then sure enough, went to law school and became a lawyer. (laughs) And um, coming out of law school, I, I actually went to a compliance management associate program at Citibank, which was designed coming out of the financial crisis in an era of very heavy financial regulation to build Citibank's bench strength and compliance leadership. They wanted to build the next generation of compliance leaders um, and they were recruiting directly from law schools. So that was just a phenomenal experience. I got to rotate through four different compliance functions at this massive um, quarter of a million <laughs> size uh, company. And so I saw a lot about what it takes to um, detect and manage risk. So it was foundational, almost like a, a post back, a continuation of my graduate education, what it looks like to build a compliance and risk mitigation program at a massive company that was under heavy regulatory scrutiny. So a very um, intense, high stress time. I was working mm. at City when they pled guilty in criminal court in New York City for violations. Wow. So it was just like a <laughs> very exciting time to be there and um, really positive experience. And after that rotational program, I rolled off into a division of City called City FinTech, which was focused on um, competing with some of the smaller startups that were slowly chipping away at City's market share. And um, shortly thereafter, I, I left City and went to one of those <laughs> smaller companies at that point a little bit, um, you know, not not small, not really a startup anymore. It was probably about a decade old, but uh, landed at PayPal. And at PayPal, I worked in um, first a compliance governance function and then uh, was the global financial crimes program manager. So worked directly for the head of financial crimes and was um, focused on continued enhancements for, for PayPal's anti-money laundering and sanctions programs. 
So, Jennifer, tell me a bit about the US Inform Act, because I know that at the moment you're you're take, taken up, you know, some of your time is taken up with that. And I, I have obviously um, read a bit about it, but it'd be interesting to hear at um, how how that's working out at Etsy and um, and how you're how you're focusing on that right now. Absolutely. So um, my team deals with legal and regulatory change. It's a large part of, of what we focus on. As new laws or regulations take shape, we need to work closely with our legal team to unpack those requirements and think about how we operationalize them so that Etsy can be in full compliance. Um, and taking a step back, it's been really interesting to see regulation on the tech industry and um, for platforms specifically coming out of Europe and the United States. Europe has emerged as really the predominant tech regulator. This started with privacy with the GDPR and is continuing now um, turning to platform and marketplace moderation um, and regulation. So um, the US Inform Act is, is a rare example of the US Congress acting in the tech regulation space. There's been endless hearings um, that many of us have seen on TV, but not a lot of actual lawmaking. Uh, so the U.S. Inform Act is currently still sitting with um, the Senate. It passed the House recently, and we're expecting it to be passed soon, but it's hard to say. There's potential it could um, remain unpassed through the lame duck period uh, in the fall and into the winter. But um, it is looking to... Um, really add requirements for marketplaces to invest in seller verification. So it's interesting for me because it's using a lot of the same concepts that are well-worn and I'm very familiar with in the financial regulatory space. Know your customer, know your business. That has long been the cornerstone of anti-money laundering regulation. The thought being, if there is robust seller verification in place, it will be more difficult for um, bad actors to be anonymous. And it will also be easier to report unusual or illicit behavior to law enforcement. So the US Inform Act is looking to do much of the same, but not in a financial crimes context, more in a, um, a content moderation context, specifically focused on product safety, anti-counterfeiting. Um, the example that I think regulators or lawmakers have in their minds when they were drafting the law was the disappearing seller from China. So where there's maybe a seller on Amazon who sells an unsafe product, a faulty product, it injures someone. And when that buyer looks to Amazon to hold the seller accountable, Amazon being a platform and not the actual seller, Amazon can't find the seller. Amazon mm. doesn't actually know who that person is or where they are or what their production and manufacturing chain looked like. So the Inform Act is, is requiring platforms, including Etsy, to invest in seller verification, to know more about their sellers, to safeguard buyers um, in that way. So how, how will that manifest itself in an actual day-to-day -day way once this, this act has, has come into force? Because surely, you know, to be able to collect this information is one thing, but when will you have to share that information or how will that work in an actual operational way? Mm -hmm. It is um, a complex 
endeavor. It sounds far simpler than it is. Mm -hmm. And it also is complex, especially for um, platforms that operate globally. Because seller verification ultimately relies on vendor partnerships with vendors that maintain um, identifiable information in that country. So in a country like the United States or in many countries in Europe, data sets are fairly robust and verifying a seller's identity using information that that seller provides to the platform, like their name, their date of birth, their address, very basic high-level identifiable information is achievable because the data is um, structured and has enough cleanliness so that you're able to do that. And sometimes you can even do it in an automated way, which of course keeps operational costs reasonable as you do this at scale. Mm-hmm. But that's not true everywhere. And, yeah. and it's an unfortunate reality that some sellers may be deplatformed or unable to sell on a platform if that platform can't identify them. And based on where they are, that may be more likely. Mm-hmm. So it, it could actually harm you know, people who, who are genuine. It could, yeah. We, we've, um, we've been talking a lot about the government-issued identification requirements. So um, requiring a government-issued ID can be problematic for um, some that don't have that document. And it's not that they're a bad actor or that they're trying to hide any kind of nefarious behavior, but it's that they don't have that physical document to provide. So um, yeah, there's a lot of nuance and complication when it comes to this, but the majority of sellers will have such a document and will be able to be verified. Mm -hmm. You said something interesting before when we were talking about this act, that this was a rare occasion where the U.S. was passing something like this. Why why is it that um, marketplaces maybe don't come under such scrutiny in the U.S. compared to to Europe? And what did you mean by that rare occasion? Yeah, I think um, what we've seen is that there is a lack of consensus in the U.S. Congress. It's hard for our country to agree on a lot of things. There's, a, there's intense polarization on a lot of topics, and tech regulation is one of them. We've seen um, content moderation itself become a political topic with, and I'm generalizing here, but the political right in the United States um, really up in arms about um, deplatforming and censorship, uh, whereas the political left is concerned about a lack of action in content moderation and too much content being left up on sites. So there really is quite a divide, um, which is meaning that it's difficult to get into um, shared territory for tech policy. And I also think that um, our Congress isn't the most tech literate. So sometimes they kind of get focused on a shiny object and they're not thinking through the full impact, the holistic assessment of the policy that they're creating. So I think we have a ways to go in the US um, when it comes to intelligent tech policymaking and just the ability to agree enough to pass legislation. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing activity on a state level where we saw GDPR pass in Europe. We then not too many years later, saw California pass very substantially similar legislation. Um, And in effect, U.S. tech platforms all operate globally. 
So we're forced to comply with the regulations coming out of Europe. It is having an effect for the benefit of United States consumers, but that isn't starting with the U.S. Congress. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the space of, you know, our careers in this sort of marketplace and platform world, that it has become politicized, the, you know, the, the trust and safety element and and content moderation size um, side of, of this, um, because it's not something that you would have necessarily predicted, but presumably this is because of social media platforms. Yeah, I think there's um, been a, an awakening insofar as the power that these platforms have. Um, the 2016 election in the United States, I think, really open people's eyes to the power that these platforms have, that their massive reach and scale and the speed at which um, user-generated content can disseminate um, was, it, it really came home for mm -hmm. many. But I also think that it's, it's about consumer protection. And especially when it comes to marketplaces, the focus there is consumer protection more so than um, the rapid dissemination of, of dis or misinformation or hate speech, violent speech. Um, so I think, yeah, it, these platforms have become so big so fast and have become a part of everyday life. Mm -hmm. And so with that comes more scrutiny. And I, I genuinely hope more regulation because I do think that it can be a positive force when, um, when it's correctly said. But quite often the technology moves fast and the regulation has to then catch up presumably That's and these right. are examples of that and we talked briefly um before we came on the podcast about the digital services act as well that's coming up isn't it yeah exactly and that's um, another perfect example of of european regulators leading the charge globally for for tech regulation um, and the dsa is going to directly regulate content moderation it's going to establish a notice and action framework. So when notified by a regulator and authority, platforms will be required to act within a certain time frame. Um, and it's really focused on removing illegal content. So the foundation is if something is illegal offline, it should also be illegal online. And this is creating the structure to enforce that. That all sounds like it's um, for, for good, um, these, the, these changes and these regulations. I think so. I think so. It's um, it's so difficult to set policy and think through all of those consequences, intended and unintended. It's also difficult to regulate platforms and marketplaces because they are so different. A platform includes an Etsy, a Pinterest, a Twitter, a YouTube, a mm -hmm. TikTok. I mean, these are very different business models that have things in common, but also have nuances that will be affected in different ways by these tech policies. Um, we also find that in the marketplace context, regulations will be created for an Amazon and those policymakers aren't thinking about the Etsy. Mm -hmm. So thinking about Etsy's um, lack of, you know, hearkening back to this lack of structured product data, barcodes, product SKUs, unique and handmade goods, um, really have different implications for the compliance uh, for some of these requirements. 
do you see a, a, a sort of utopian future for marketplaces and platforms and where people can identify themselves? There is, you know, their content is always, you know, great. Um, there are no counterfeit goods. There's, there are no scammers or fake reviews. Is, is something like that possible or is it just a case of doing the best we can? I think it'll always be doing the best we can and we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. But I think that there is enormous opportunity in the digital identity space. I think we're just scratching the surface and those imperfect data sets that I referenced feels like that is the ceiling and we have a, or the, the floor, excuse me, and we have a long way to go before we reach the ceiling. What's possible there um, in terms of digital citizenship or some kind of maybe blockchain enabled token that allows you access um, with verified identity. I think that could be um, something really positive to maintain the internet's um, free nature, but still give some kind of structure to those that are allowed to operate freely within it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. What an interesting discussion. I feel like I could chat on for ages with you. And also thank you for joining the Marketplace Risk Advisory Board. I feel that your contribution is going to be really valuable. So um, thanks again for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning into the Platform Podcast. Be sure to check us out at marketplacerisk.com for information and resources to help startups launch, grow and succeed. And follow us on social media at Marketplace Risk to stay up to date on all of our conferences, summits, virtual events, and more.